Thank you, Ryan. That was beautiful as always. So parents, when you hear that clackety-clank noise as your kids practice their piano lessons, this is what they become after a few years. So be patient with them as they are learning their instrument. Uh, we need to pray for Pastor Daniel this morning. He is preaching at Haven Baptist, giving Andrew Record a moment for, to be able to take a little uh, break and vacation. Uh, so we'll pray for him. But if you should need something other than from me or from Pastor Brian, we also have a special guest and visitor with us. Dr. Alex Carr is back there, and soon to be Dr. Nicole Carr is also with them, visiting back with us from Shadyside, Maryland. Alex, Nicole, and the rest of the family, it is so great to see you guys. Thanks for blessing us with your presence this morning. We really appreciate it. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the good God that you are. That is sufficient enough for us to offer praise to you because, Lord, you are the creator, the sustainer of all. And, Lord, everything that has breath owes its allegiance, its existence to you. And so, Lord, we want to magnify you. We want to say, praise Yahweh. We want to be able to say, bless my soul to the great God of the universe. And Lord, we know we are enabled to do so because of the finished work of Christ, which allows us to enter into your presence as adopted children, to come to see you truly as Father. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless our service today. We pray you would also be with our brother Daniel Pray, Lord, that you would bless the members of Haven Baptist as he preaches to them. And, Lord, we also pray for the work that's getting ready to happen in 2024, whether that is here in Huntsville through Gracious Savior Church and through Redeemer Church, and also, Lord, through uh, our good friend Alex up in Shadyside, Maryland, Lord, that you would bless the ministries, Lord, of those that are proclaiming your goodness. May you receive all the glory. We pray this in Christ's name alone. Amen. Well, if you are new to Providence, you might not be aware that we have a psalm of the year. And each year we choose one psalm for the congregation to concentrate and meditate upon for the following 12 months. We usually introduce it on the first or the last Sunday of the previous year and then make it our focus during our summer prayer meetings. And I love the fact that we're getting ready to head into 2024. I don't know if you got a, a little glee this morning if you were to have your own prayer journal of writing one, two, three, one, two, three uh, during the dating for today, uh, but that is 12-31-23, just so that you'll know. It's a little palindrome there. But I realize also that I'm addressing two congregations this morning. At least that will be the case in two weeks' time. But the pastors of Gracious Savior have also chosen for you, Gracious Savior, this psalm as well. It's a fitting word for this season in the lives of both congregations, and it's what led me to it in the first place. One of the most difficult things for me to embrace is change. I am a person that likes routine. I'm not big on surprises because they tend to throw me off and they disrupt my plans and my schedule. For example, I know I am in a full, uh, 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 fools, a bunch of fools, no, that's not what I meant. I'm in a church full of engineers, but I'm not a fan of technology. Uh, you guys keep changing my stuff, especially you software engineers. I constantly must have to relearn how to use things because of you. Stop it. 
It's why I like books so much. The technology of how they work doesn't change. I access information the same way every time. For Christmas, Lisa gave me a new phone. If you'd seen the state of my old phone, then you would understand why. But the new one stayed in the box for three days afterwards because I had fear and trepidation about transferring the data and also that I'm going to have to relearn how to use it. And when I finally got around to it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. So I thank the Lord that it wasn't an Android. But I am not big on change. And here's why. It puts things further outside my control. We've had a lot of changes in my household this year. Lisa is working within a new position at her job. Uh, Olivia has been working down in Mobile for a co-op, putting her outside of our reach. Evie just got her driver's license. Uh, Amelia and Jacob are married, and this was the, the first Christmas holiday that we had to share her with another family. Then on top of that, the elders have been having to plan on this new church launch all year. That means I will not see some dear brothers and sisters every week like I have in the past. New people must assume new roles. And it's been quite a vocational disruption for me. Again, these are all things that are outside my control. These are things that make me uncomfortable. And this is especially why Psalm 104 is appropriate for our two church families in this upcoming year. I want to approach this psalm. In fact, if you have it turned there, please turn back to Psalm 104. It's uh, page 502 in your pew Bible. I want to approach the psalm under three headings here. First, I want to give a general introduction to the psalm. And then second, uh, give a brief general exposition of the psalm and then leave some time at the end for application. And just so you know, I've only begun just a general study of this psalm myself. There are probably many more applications, but I wish to share with you what the Lord has been teaching me through it. And I'm trying to put into practice right now within my own life. So that's going to form our outline today. Introduction, exposition, applications. Now, we don't have a heading for this psalm. There is no attribution of an author, though Calvin believed it was King David, because it pairs so well with Psalm 103, which was written by the great king. That psalm begins with the same individual command to bless the Lord as 104 does. However, in Psalm 103, there is a particular emphasis on the benefits to the church and a hope of a heavenly life. Psalm 104 exclusively focuses on all of life and creation in the now. So they do pair well together and they offer balance, but we can't infer that, that David wrote this one as well based on that alone. Now, if you pick up a modern commentary, you will see there is much discussion and debate about whether or not this psalm was plagiarized from an ancient Egyptian hymn dated to about 1500 BC, dedicated to the sun god Aten. Now, there are some similarities, but there are also some significant differences, mainly that Aten, which was the sun disk, was to be worshiped as a god above other gods, plural. In contrast, Psalm 104 emphasizes monotheism. And while the poems may have some minor comparisons, the psalm's praise is for a God who is outside of his creation and is the source of life, not a part of it like the Egyptian literature. 
The psalm addresses the order of creation overall, not just the son's relationship to it. Therefore, Psalm 104 would seem to be more connected to Genesis chapters 1 through 3 than to this hymn to Aten, which you can easily find online if you want to be able to read it. If anything, the psalmist may have been familiar with the Egyptian poem and is offering a correction to it by honoring the one true God. In my opinion, that would be the closest relationship between the two. And that brings us to the main themes of this psalm. I would say that Psalm 104 dwells upon two words. Here are two words, boundaries and order. Boundaries and order. There is an order in which Yahweh has organized the earth. And despite its constant changes, its ebbs and its flows, there are boundaries that are maintained by the Lord, and that should offer us comfort and confidence to the reader. As we study through it, see if you become aware of these key concepts of boundaries and order and the security that it provides. It should increase our faith that God is solidly in control of all things. Nothing is outside of his purview. Now, this psalm has been a balm not only to the ancient Jews who would have seen their temple destroyed twice, the monarchy rise and fall with good and bad characters, and their people exiled and restored, but it has also been a blessing to the church age. Augustine preached four sermons from this psalm and applied it to the confusion created by governmental forces, to the satanic and demonic and the general ignorance of man when we don't understand what our creator is doing. Calvin called it encouragement to praise God, quote, for the manifestation he has made of himself as a father to us in this frail and perishable life, end quote. Psalm 104 has inspired numerous hymns that are used in Christian worship all things bright and beautiful, for the beauty of the earth. I sing the mighty power of God. This is our Father's world, and O worship the King, which we will sing later. All of them find their origin in this psalm. It is a hymn that inspires worship and confidence in our creator, sustainer God. So let's do a general overview of the psalm so that we can understand what it is communicating to its readers. And I hope and pray that you're going to use it to meditate in the upcoming months and allow it to feed your soul. The psalm can be divided into five parts. First, there is a call for the individual to bless Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And then that's going to have a reprise as the fifth part in verse 35. And in between these two imperatives here, to bless the Lord, are three additional sections. In section two, we'll see that God is portrayed as the creator Lord who rules from heaven. And in section three, we'll see him as the sustainer Lord who nurtures his creation. And in the fourth section, we will take into account all of it to show that this God must be praised for all that he does which concludes with a new call to bless Yahweh from the writer's very own soul. Now, one feature to point out is the way that the writer is going to switch back and forth between speaking to God and also to his readers. So like in verse 1, he speaks to God in the second person. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, two terms often associated with God's kavod or his glory. And then in verse 3, he switches to the third person. He lays the beams of his chambers. It's as though the writer is drawing in his readers to say, come and be aware of this great God so that your soul will bless him also. So again, to start with, the psalmist calls upon his own soul to bless Yahweh. 
He personalizes this to say, Yahweh is my God. And he says why he blesses God. It is because he is very great. Now, I'm going to talk a bit more what it means to bless the Lord when we get to the application. But let's move on into the motivation of why one should bless Yahweh. How is he very great? Well, from the second you here in verse 1 all the way through verse 9, the author draws his imagery from Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. He will use metaphors to describe God's cosmic activity. Now, the ancients believed that weather was kept in storehouses above them. But the psalmist is going to take this a bit further. He will allude to God in creation making order out of chaos, sorting and ordering and putting everything in its proper place as he sees fit. Look at this God. He clothes himself with light. He doesn't need light, but he puts it on like a garment. Why? So that he might be seen by his creation. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, clothing yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. God is so far above his creation. To him, the heavens are merely like a tent that he spreads out above us. Remember from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we learn that the Spirit of God hovered above the waters. Waters represented the chaotic environment or the instability of what preceded creation. And look what God does. Verse 3, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messenger winds and his ministers a flaming fire. All atmospheric conditions are at the command and do the bidding of Yahweh. God sorts through all of the chaos and makes it do his bidding. Things that would frighten us serve Yahweh. And now the writer moves from the heavens to the Lord's creative activity on the earth. Verse 5, he set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. And in verse 6, we'll speak of the expanse of the sky that will be created between the heavens and the earth. From Genesis 1, 6 through 10. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. And at your rebuke, they fled at the sound of your thunder. They took flight. This word rebuke can be translated as shout. What magnificent power this conveys. Imagine God shouting. Would you flee? The waters did. God rebukes the heavens and earth obey. Verse 8, the mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the places that you appointed for them. And of course, this next verse resembles Job 38:11, where God established the, the boundaries for the tides of the sea. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not gain, uh, might not again cover the earth. Now look back over all that creative activity. What has God done? He has established order. He has done so with security. There are boundaries and there is order. We can have confidence in the world that he created. Everything is at his command. However, with such power, it should incite fear and reverence from us towards this almighty God. This God is all-powerful. He speaks and, and the waters recede. He puts the mountains where he wants them. Behold your God. And yet, in the next section from verses 10 through 30, the writer will portray the Lord as the gentle sustainer and nurturer that cares for his creation. He is not like the God of the deist where, where he creates the watch and winds it up and just lets it run. 
the psalmist portrays Yahweh as being intimately involved with his world. There appears to be three sections under this theme. Verses 10 through 18 form a type of chiasm, or let me translate for my brother Ryan, chiasm. Form a type of chiasm here. And you can see how that arranges itself. Verses 10 through 11, if you look at those, they speak of mountains. And then when you look at verse 18, they speak of hills. And then verses 12 through 13, they speak of birds and trees, as does verses 16 and 17. And in the middle of all of them, verses 14 through 15, addresses how this benefits the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind. God provides a home for all, and he takes care of all their needs. He takes the dangerous waters and he subdues them as a resource. He gives food for the livestock and plants for men and women to cultivate and eat. In verses 19 through 23, the psalmist addresses seasons and times of day. Even those are ordered by God. Following Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, he states the moon and the sun are appointed to mark the seasons and the days. At night, there's a segment of nature that emerges for their benefit. An example would be the lions that, that hunt for their prey. But when the sun rises, they return to their dens and their nest, and another segment of nature arises, particularly that of man who benefits from daylight. Each segment of nature prospers in the way that it was created. And the interconnectivity of the diversity of nature inspires awe from the psalmist, so much so that he exclaims in verse 24, O Yahweh, how manifold are your works and wisdom. You have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. That word creatures can also be translated as possessions. The earth is full of the Lord's possessions. And now we'll move from the creeping things on the land to the teeming life within the sea. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in. Think of how vast the ocean is and how full of life it is. We are still uncovering new species that we're unaware of, both on land and in the sea. Every year on the website, greenmatters.com, they reveal the newest species to be discovered in the previous year. In 2023, there were 12 new species that we discovered. Not created, all right, or evolved, but 12 new species that we have just found out about. It's amazing. Most of them were in ocean life, but, but think of all the, that water here that we read about starting here in verse 3. It is contained in the oceans, and not only can leviathans play in it, which I have to be honest, I do think that this might be a reference to some type of extinct massive reptile that survived the flood, but feel free to insert the word whale if that makes you feel any safer. But not only can these massive beasts play in the ocean, but mankind's ships can safely navigate through the seas. It makes one wonder if there will be a modern psalmist one day who would not turn their attention to how man can navigate through space travel as well. But the point of all this life is found in the third portion of verses 27 through 30. All of it is completely dependent upon God. Verses 27 and 28 display that creatures may gather the food in its proper season, but it all originates from the hand of the Creator. But not just food, but also life and death. Like Genesis 2-7, the Lord breathes and it creates life. The Hebrew word ruach means spirit, breath, and wind. And here in verse 29, God takes away breath or spirit and mankind 
dies and returns to dust. And in verse 30, he gives his spirit or breath and life occurs. Everything is at the Lord's command. There is nothing that is not under his sovereignty. It is all as the narrator of Genesis 1 reveals, very good. And this moves us into the last section where the psalmist will praise Yahweh for his creation. And it's divided into two parts here. First, the writer calls upon Yahweh to rejoice in his works. He wants Yahweh to enjoy his creation as he created it. He wants God's glory to be extolled from it from ever. May Yahweh, who causes earthquakes and volcanoes to blow, rejoice over his creation. It is all at his command to do as he pleases. And then, in the second portion, the psalmist himself will sing also to Yahweh. He will praise God. But notice something special here. Look at this. He says, while I live, while I have being. Now, he's not saying that they're not going to be joyful praise when we reach heaven. But he specifies that while he is an inhabitant on the earth, he will give God his due praise now. He sums up by saying, may my meditation be pleasing to Yahweh, for I rejoice in him. The word translated as meditation can also be the word murmuring. It's as if the psalmist is saying, may my thoughts are too small on this subject, but please, Lord, take pleasure that even such small thoughts seek to praise you. And it may seem off that there is this imprecatory petition inserted here in verse 35. After so much of a description of God's goodness, he states, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Now, while such a statement seems jarring to us, it's not out of place or unwarranted. What is the one thing that contaminates this beautiful, wonderful world that God has created? Sin. And who are the agents that spread it? Is it the weather? Is it plant life? Is it the animal kingdom? No, it's mankind. We are what ruins God's creative order. We are the ones that blow it. And so it's fitting for the psalmist to acknowledge that sin really has no place in Yahweh's perfect world. So now we've arrived at the end of the exposition of the psalm. Perhaps I can share a little more about what the Lord has been teaching me so I can apply its truth to my life. And again, for me, this is just initial thoughts. I just began meditating on this text back in November. So I'm going to reserve the right to add a few more applications come this summer when we review it again. But feel free to hold me accountable to these applications and practice right now. For me, I am trying to apply five truths from this psalm, five of them. Number one is that while the overall theme of this psalm is God's creative power and the natural systems that he has created, there is still an implied emphasis on men and women as the pinnacle of the Lord's creation. There's still an implied emphasis as the pinnacle of men and women as the pinnacle of the Lord's creation. Now, don't assume that we're going to be man-centered from this psalm. That's not the point. God created this world for mankind to flourish and give praise to him. This is our Father's world. He created it for us, but also as a means of giving him glory and thanksgiving for what he has done. And this means there should be two responses from us based upon this truth. We have a divine obligation to take care of and steward the earth well. Not just for our own selfish benefit, but for the benefit of the natural world overall and for our fellow man. So we must steward the world's resources well for all of his creation. 
But that does not mean that we elevate the natural world to the same status as men and women. And that's the second response. All people matter to Yahweh. They are the pinnacle of his creation. And if we truly want to value our fellow humans, then the absolute best thing that we can do for them is to introduce them to this God who created them and sustains them. So our response should be value nature and value people. And the best way to do either is to bring both under the rule of Yahweh, our creator. Application number two is to contemplate the God who wants to be known and shares himself with us. We want to think upon the God who wants to be known and shares himself with us. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1 that God makes himself known to all. He wrote, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. God has put all of these clues around us so that we might seek him. And yet, even in our sinfulness, he is still seeking us. He sent his only son into the world to save us from our sin and to give us his right standing before the Father. All so that he might share himself with us. And here's the thought that led me to this. When we consider verse 2, does God need heaven? Does God need a place to reside? No. He's spirit. He doesn't need heaven. He doesn't need anything. He is completely self-sustaining without any need whatsoever. So why did God establish a heaven? Why did God give us this beautiful earth? So that we might have an environment in which he can share himself with us. What is the chief end of man? That we would glorify God and, and enjoy him forever. That's why God created this. That's why he created heaven and earth. And that's why it will be renewed at the end for all of eternity. Application number three. According to verses 27 through 30, life is not at our disposal. Life is not at mankind's disposal. To live or to die is meant to be at the Lord's discretion. Now, I'm going to say a bit more about what it means when natural death enters into our lives in just a bit. But for now, we need to consider how we evaluate human life among us. If the Lord considers life to be a privilege, then we should as well. In a few weeks, we will have our annual baby dedication on Sanctity of Life Sunday. And it's going to be a time when we bring forth the children who have become a part of our congregation in the previous years so that we can say, these children, these babies, they matter to us. And as a covenant community, we will work together to help them flourish under God. But it's not just our children. We should also extend this dignity to the orphan, to the widow, to the poor, to the infirmed and the aged that is among us. All of life is important to Yahweh. He is the one that brought it into being in the first place. Application number four. We can see from this psalm, it's the one that, it's the application I kind of, ah, we can see from this psalm, change is inevitable. Change is inevitable. Weather changes, waterways change, birds move their nest, food comes and goes, seasons change, the sun rises and falls, and 
death comes as well as new life. Change is inevitable. But the challenge of Psalm 104 puts before us is to ask ourselves, do we have faith in the God who rules over these changes? Do we have faith in the God who rules over these changes? Can we look at the order and the boundaries that he's put into place and know that he is still in control even when the earth trembles and volcanoes blow? These changes, these natural processes reveal that God is truly sovereign and therefore we can trust him. They become verifiable proofs that, that we serve a God of order and that he can be trusted throughout the changes. And finally, and perhaps the most important application that I am working on right now is this. Can I bless the Lord with my entire being, my very own soul, as he accomplishes his work around me, even when that means change? The psalmist says that he wants to do this. He wants to bless the Lord while he lives, while he has being. Can I do this now? I know when I reach heaven, I'm going to be able to look back and I see the perfect wisdom of God and I will praise and I will acknowledge it. But can I do it now when it makes me uncomfortable, when it calls me to sacrifice? when I must suffer? Can I in such moments rejoice in the providence of my God? That's what this psalm is calling us to do. Verse 34, for I personally, I rejoice in the Lord. I'm supposed to rise up when I stand at the graveside of a dear friend and say, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. When I stand beside my friends who have a baby that's in the NICU and have all the cords that are attached to their child, can I say in that moment, bless the Lord, O my soul, O my God, you are very great. When we watch on the news the Russian missiles pound into the Ukrainians, can I say, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. When I see injustices that occur around me, can I trust that God is sovereign even then and say, bless the Lord, O my soul, O my God, you are very great. Because the chief moment for me in understanding this is when I stand and I look at the cross and I see what the Son of God took on himself for me, that, that a plan was initiated to draw me to him before time began so that I might share in his inheritance. And if I can wrap my mind around that perfect plan of Jesus Christ crucified for me, then I can say, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. If so then even when my dearest friends depart to plant a church or, or go on the mission field or undergo persecution, knowing that Christ did that for us, I can say, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. I can worship my King now while I live, while I have being, knowing that my God is in control of all of those changes that are occurring around me.
He is that big. He is that magnificent. And he loves us that well. Let's pray. Lord, we we look at all the things that are happening in life. Some things, Lord, we applaud and we say, yes, this is great. When our team wins, when we do well on the test, when we get the promotion, when we see new life occurs, when our children do well. And it's easy to say, bless the Lord. But then, Lord, you are control over all. You are sovereign over all. Your majesty is over all. And if that is the case, Lord, can we trust that you are accomplishing your work in the moment when changes feel incredibly uncomfortable, when changes hurt, when changes cause us to suffer, whether that's our bodies deteriorating, whether it's watching a world full of sin enact itself and seeing the horrible abuses on mankind, whether it's brutality or or rape or murder, knowing that, Lord, in the end, you will restore all, that you will eliminate sin in the final day. But even now, can we say that we trust you? Can we say, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, for you are very great. That is the challenge for us this year. Lord, this congregation is getting ready to go through many changes. We know that. We know that you are the one that called us to it. You called it to us when Robert Smith left us to plant Christ, or Grace Fellowship up in uh, Cowan, Tennessee. And you had families of ours leave to go with them. You, you did the same when, when Zach Carter left us, Lord, to, to plant Redeemer Church here in Huntsville. You're doing the same with Brian and Tommy as, as they lead out a group of people more significant than ever before from our congregation to plant a new work in our city because, Lord, you are worthy of all praise. And, Lord, it means that there are going to be changes. There's going to be things that affect both congregations in the future as we move forward, as we have challenges. Help us, Lord, in such moments to say, yes, your glory matters. Your glory is worth it all. Whatever discomfort it brings to our lives, whatever suffering it brings to our lives, help us to be able to say, yes, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God. You are very great. May we do this, Lord, as an act of worship to you because you have made a way for us to be with you through your one and only Son, the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. We pray this in his finished work alone. Amen.